Be seated. Before I read God's word, let's pray. Lord, this is indeed your word. You've spoken to us, and we are so unworthy of it. And at times, to our shame, we are inattentive to it. Lord, give us holy, spirit-filled focus right now that we would hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Jude, if you would. Now, Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, so if you find Revelation, uh, just turn back. In most copies of your Bible, probably Jude is only a page long, and so it's easy to to miss. Uh, So look at Revelation, turn back a page. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's found on page 1027 of that Bible, and just as an... uh, 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 It would be our joy, let me say it this way, if you do not have a Bible of your own, it would be our joy if you took that copy of God's Word with you and got use out of it throughout the week. Uh, This is our third sermon from Jude. In the beginning, we saw the welcome, and then last week, we looked as Jude called us to remain steadfast and immovable in the faith. He called us to contend for the faith, and he says you're going to have to do this in the face of people who creep into the church unnoticed, and they seek to pervert the grace of our God by sensuality. In other words, they're going to teach things that will lead people astray. You know, that warning almost 2,000 years ago is no less relevant today, is it? You have so much access at the click of a finger, at the click of a mouse, or at the turn of a button to false teaching, and we have to be just as on guard today as we did then. And Jude wants to remind the brothers and sisters here of what's at stake by saying to them, listen, God does not play around with these things, but rather God will judge the unrepentant no matter how religious they may seem. Now, these are heavy words, but they're good words. Look with me, Jude, verses 5 through 7. God says, and Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I know that many in this room are going to have no sympathy upon me for this, but I turned 40, I will turn 42 in a few weeks. And nobody warned me how much things go downhill after 40. Putting on shoes is dangerous most days. Uh, It's amazing how often I have to say, I must have slept on it funny, because something always seems to hurt. It's not just physical, it's it's the mental as well, how how often I have to be reminded of things. 
Why did I come in this room? Oh yeah, I came in this room to find that thing. Now what was the thing that I couldn't find that I came in here to look for in the first place? I'm thankful to have a wife who who has not yet lost her mind because she can remind me what I'm supposed to be doing on any given day. You know, reminders are good because we are so prone to forget, aren't we? This passage is full of reminders. They're reminders of spiritual and eternal things, things that are so significant they should be imprinted imprinted upon our souls. We should never, ever, ever forget them, but we do, not because of some cognitive decline, but because of what we could call spiritual forgetfulness. And so first in this passage, we see the reminder of grace. And I'm glad we get to start with this because this passage does move into a really stark direction as as Jude talks about hard stuff with judgment and gives three examples of judgment. But in the very beginning, he starts by reminding us of grace. And so we're going to parse that out first. And then second, we're going to look at this reminder of judgment, this really threefold reminder of judgment. His readers would have known these, these examples from either Old Testament, their Old Testament knowledge or Jewish lore that was passed down through the ages. And so he's going to say, remember the Israelites who were judged in the wilderness? Remember the angels who were judged for their fall? And remember the eternal judgment that befell Sodom and Gomorrah? Why do you and I need to, to remember these things? Well, uh, because if we do not turn to Jesus Christ, or if we do not persevere in the faith, these same things will happen to us, and so we need to be reminded of judgment. And then third, there's a moment of crisis here, and Jude intends to bring a moment of crisis. And on the one hand, it's a moment of crisis for false teachers who have infiltrated the church, and Jude knows they have been, may have been present when this letter was read, but it's also a moment of crisis for those who are in the church to determine whether they will remain lukewarm in their Christianity and tolerate all sorts of things that God does not tolerate, or will they contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered to them? So that's where we're going. Reminder of grace, reminder about judgment, and then the moment of crisis. So first, this reminder of grace in verse 5. Look there with me if you would. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Do you see grace there? Do you see how gracious that statement is? I know it's easy to get get distracted with the catastrophic language of, of destroyed, and that is serious language. But he says here, don't forget about the grace that God showed to the Israelites by delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And Jude wants to highlight that in verse 5 by saying to them specifically, this is really astounding to me, it was actually Jesus who delivered them. Now, Jude is not confused about the timeline of Jesus' life. Jude was Jesus' half-brother. So he's not thinking that Jesus was somebody that had lived 1,400 years before. He didn't get confused. So we might be apt to think, well, how could it be Jesus who delivered them 1,400 years before Christmas time, the first Christmas? I'm not going to get into this too much, but Jude is showing us how to read the Old Testament here. This is a wonderfully helpful clue as to how to read the Old Testament. He's showing us that 
When we see God in the Old Testament at the ground level in visible form saving people, it is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's, It's the second person of the Trinity. And so he's able to say here, He's not fudging on his theology. He's able to say it was actually Jesus who 1,400 years before the incarnation delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And the point that Jude's making in all of that is remember the grace that you've been shown. Remember how gracious God has been to you. The the Israelites had spent four centuries in Egypt, and it was progressively worse slavery until it became intolerable. And they cried out to the Lord, and he rescued them. He delivered them through miracles and showed great power as he took them from Egypt into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. Now, you might be saying, what's the relevance of what happened 1,400 years before with the Israelites to these struggling Christians. And we might be wondering, what's the relevance of what happened with them for you and me today? All throughout the Old Testament, the Exodus story was really the ultimate demonstration of God's love and power. It was the ultimate demonstration of God's love and power towards his people. And then the New Testament authors come along And they connect the dots and they say this, Jesus has brought a second, greater exodus. In the Old Testament, they were led out of the misery of sin and slavery, excuse me, the misery of slavery. In the New Testament, we are led out, out of the misery and bondage of sin. In the Old Testament, they were led to an earthly promised land. In the New Testament, Jesus leads us into the eternal promised land of heaven. And so the Old Testament exodus is really just a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Jude is saying, above all else, I want you to remember what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done for you. You Wouldn't we do really well if every day we just woke up And we thought, what has Jesus done for me? And we recounted all the kindnesses that he has shown to us in the gospel, in our lives. He he delivered us in a way that was even greater than what he delivered the Israelites from. The yoke of slavery was nothing compared to the yoke of sin. The, The peril that awaited them in Egypt is nothing compared to the peril that awaits you and I apart from Jesus Christ. And so you and I have every reason to need to be reminded day after day after day after day after day after day of the grace of God to us in the gospel. We need that, don't we? Jerry Bridges wisely said we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Do you ever have spiritual amnesia? I do. I do. I I forget the gospel. I mean, I I know the gospel. I study it and proclaim it for a living, but I also forget it, and I'm not saying that I, what is the, what's the message I'm supposed to be proclaiming? I don't struggle with that, but deep down in the recesses of my heart, I forget the gospel. Are you ever guilty of that? And we need to be reminded of the old, old story, don't we? We need to be reminded of the same simple gospel truths. Martin Luther Uh, was really the forerunner, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, and he 
following the Reformation, the gospel never grew old to him. Isn't that something we'd once said of us? The gospel never grew old to us. But Luther preached the same simple gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners week after week after week after week. And finally, a man in his congregation said to him, Martin, why do you preach the same thing over and over? Surely we're ready for something more by now. And Luther's response was, I preach it week after week because week after week, you look in here, you walk in here looking like a people who have forgotten the gospel. And until you walk in here looking like a people who have truly and permanently been liberated by the truths of the gospel, I'm going to preach it to you. And until his dying day, he did. Now, do you ever forget the gospel? When you seek to build your identity, your sense of worth, build the security of your life upon anything other than Jesus Christ, you have forgotten the gospel. When you wonder if somebody is too far gone for the cross to save them, you have forgotten the gospel. When I question whether God can really bring good out of a bad situation, I have forgotten the gospel. When we think about stewardship of money and time and talents and resources and all of that, but we'd rather be stingy with our time or our talents than show the same sort of generosity that Jesus showed, I've forgotten the gospel. When I say that I am forgiven, but I'm unwilling to forgive others, I've forgotten the gospel. And so we need to be reminded, and Jude starts here, don't forget about what Jesus has done for you. Just as he delivered the Israelites out of slavery, he has delivered you. And that needs to set the tone of your life. And you need to be reminded of that truth day after day after day. That's the first thing, is this wonderful reminder of God's grace. But then Jude moves from a reminder of grace to this reminder about judgment. And it's kind of stark. It, it, and Jude himself says, you know, I'd rather speak to you. We saw this last week. I'd rather talk about some really happy things. But I've got to talk about this hard stuff. And Jude go, went on to explain last week, there's a tendency among some to take advantage of God's grace. So rather than God's grace propelling them to serve God all the more, they use it as an excuse to sin all the more. It's okay because I'm forgiven. Look with me there. Look back at verse 4 that we saw last week. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, they use it as an excuse, a justification to live however they want to live. And he says, in so doing, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are, these are people who say to themselves and say to others, you know, I can do whatever I want to because of God's grace. I can live however I want to. Jesus paid it all. It's all done. I can live in any way that I want. And Jude says, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Have you forgotten about all the other times people have said that? They have seen the grace of God and then they have gone on to live selfish, sensual lives? Have you not seen what happened to them? And that's why Jude goes into these three stories. He calls them in verse 7 examples. They're examples for you. 
the Israelites, the angels, the the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to briefly look at each. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here because there's definitely rabbit trails that we could go down about each one, but I want to see the big picture. First, he says, remember how God judged the Israelites in the wilderness. He's talking about how Jesus had delivered them out of Egypt through great miracles and mighty works. And do you remember what happened afterwards? They get in the wilderness and they complain. (laughs) You know, the food's terrible here, God. We're really thirsty. Did you bring us out here to die? They rebelled and God judged them. More than half a million of them died in, in the wilderness. And I suppose specifically, Jude may have had in mind the Numbers 13 story where the 12 spies were sent into the land to spy it out, not to determine can we take the land, but how should we take the land, and sort of to whet their appetite for this land of milk and honey that God had promised to them. And these spies go in, And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they say, it's wonderful. Sure, there's some inhabitants there. God will take care of that. Let's go. But the other ten said, no way, buddy. We're not going to do that. There's no way we can take this land. The people there are like giants. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to smash us under their feet. Now, who did all of Israel believe? The two who said, no, we should trust God's promises, or the ten who said, our eyes tell us that this land is not ours for the taking. And the people should have followed Joshua and Caleb. Hey, if God has promised us this, it's a done deal. Let's just walk in obedience. But they didn't, and the people rebelled, and they said, we're not going to go. We're not, you didn't, did you bring us out here just to die, God? And God says, well, no, I didn't bring you out of Egypt just to die. But because of your rebellion against me, that's actually exactly what's going to happen. And everyone of that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. What was their sin that they were guilty of? It certainly wasn't the moral scandal that Sodom and Gomorrah had. The sin they were guilty of was the sin of unbelief. They had the promises of God, but it wasn't enough. Yeah, they knew all that God had done, all that God had promised, but it did not penetrate their hearts. And they sort of looked at God saying, so what? It did not transform who they are. They were guilty of the sin of unbelief, knowing God's promises, but not trusting God. You know, that's the root of all sin. You think back to the garden, how the serpent sought to deceive Eve, and he said, has God really said the root of all sin is unbelief? not believing what God has promised. How often can we be guilty of that today? We can struggle to believe God. R.C. Sproul one time said, it's so difficult to believe the God we believe in. We know he exists, but do we really trust his promises? I think some of you probably have very tender consciences here, and you wonder, well, I I struggle with unbelief. I struggle with doubt sometimes. Does that mean I'm going to be judged like the, like the Israelites were? And, and we were talking, some men and I were talking about this this week, and Brian Nygaard had a great illustration. He said, you know, there's a difference between capital U, unbelief, and sort of lowercase u, unbelief. 
the, the small you unbelief are those daily occurrences when you and I struggle to trust God. We struggle really to trust God. We can worry about things and our minds get ahead of us and we go in all sorts of places that, that our minds shouldn't go because we have a God who is sovereign, but we do that, don't we? It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. In a sense, we're like the father in Mark 9 who came to Jesus in hopes that the Lord would heal his daughter. And what does he cry out? I believe, help my unbelief. That's, that's lowercase you unbelief. It's, it's the daily struggle of the Christian life. But then there's big U, capital U, unbelief. This is the sin of the Israelites here. They had the promises. They were part of the people of God. They had seen God's power, and yet they said, we're not going to believe it. We're not going to trust God. They didn't struggle with unbelief at times like some of us do. They were unbelievers, and so they did not enter the land. They looked like believers. They had the promises. They were part of the covenant community, but when the rubber met the road, they didn't trust God. You know, that's really at the core of the Christian life, not do I know all the right answers but am I willing to, to put myself in God's hands? Uh, Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker over Niagara Falls, um, and he was a great showman. He would walk across the tightrope, and everybody would cheer, and then he would say, do you think I can do it while carrying bricks in my hands? And they'd cheer, yes, and he would do it. And then he would say, do you think I can do it with a wheelbarrow? And he, they would cheer, and he would do it, and he'd say, do you think I can do it with a wheelbarrow with somebody in it? And everybody would cheer, and then he'd look at somebody and say, get in. You and I better be willing to get in. See, that the Christian life is really willingness to put ourselves in full submission and trust to God. And the Israelites are saying, no, we really can't do that. We really don't trust this God. And so the sin they committed was the sin of unbelief, refusing to trust God. And then second, he says, remember how God judged the angels who fell. This is a bit more of a complicated issue than the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, commentators are split on exactly what this is talking about. Now, I'm going to try to lay out both cases for you, and then I'll tell you what I think is the right one, but it's one of those where I can get to heaven and God might say, Alex, you were really wrong on that one. The first view is this is an allusion to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where we're told that the sons of God took the daughters of men to be their wives, and they had children. And one way, historically, of reading this is to say that the, the sons of God were angels who came to earth, and they married human wives. And so when Jude says the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, it's, some people believe that that's talking about them coming to earth and procreating with humans. Now, that was commonly accepted in the early church. It's a little bit more rare today, but there's still a lot of people who believe it. Uh, I think one of the main reasons I don't think that's the right view is Matthew 22, verse 30, says that the angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. The other understanding of what Jude is saying, oh, and by the way, if that's right, then the sin of the angels was pride and sexual immorality, if that's the case. The other understanding of the angels here is that Jude is talking about 
the fall of Satan and a third of the angels because of rebellion in heaven. In the beginning, Satan was one of the most exalted of the heavenly beings. Now his glory paled in comparison with the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in glory. And the angels were created to magnify the glory of Christ and to serve him, but some grew jealous, particularly Satan grew jealous of the glory of the second person of the Trinity. And so I think that's what it means when Jude says he did not stay within his own, or they didn't stay within their own position of authority. Satan wasn't content to play second fiddle, in a sense, to Jesus Christ. He rebelled, and a third of the angels did with him. You might be saying, well, where do you get this biblically? Look with me at Isaiah 14. I told you I was going to stay out of the weeds in this, but I'm not. Sorry about that. Look at Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I'll, set, I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, that seems, uh, that seems fairly straightforward in terms of the case I'm making, but in full transparency, Isaiah 14 is talking about the king of Babylon. My view would be that it, it's a dual meaning here. It was speaking of the king of Babylon who, who sought to build his own kingdom, but also speaking of Satan and telling us about the fall of Satan. So of the two views sons of God, daughters of men intermarrying, or Satan falling from heaven. I think the second is the most plausible, which would mean the sin of which Satan was guilty was pride. It's no wonder then that from the garden on, Satan has always sought to tempt us with the same thing, with believing we do not need God. Well, we don't have to agree on, on whether it's about the angels marrying with men and women or or the fall of the angels, because no matter what, we reach the same answer. It was pride that cast the demons and the devil out of heaven. They knew the truth. They weren't willing to give up their own agenda, but they were jealous for their own glory. You know, we might ask, why do they continue to oppose God if they know the consequences of doing so? Why do they still oppose God today? And the answer is pride. The Bible speaks uniformly against the sins of pride and arrogance. Jude's brother James says, God opposes the proud. He sets himself against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want you to think about this just in terms of our own world for a moment. This means the reason people resist God today is not about unanswered intellectual questions or objections to the Bible. The reason people reject God or resist God is just like the fallen angels. It's not intellectual, it's volitional. 
It's saying we don't want to worship God. We want to seek for ourselves and not Him. You see, because of our pride, we don't want to give up autonomy, our, our own ability to rule our own lives. You know, Aldous Huxley was, was a, a famous atheist, and of course, I, we would not want to avow his teachings, but there's a perspective that Huxley brought that was really, really honest, and it's a sort of honesty that we've lost today in the way people think about Christianity. Huxley was, as I said, an atheist, but he had a friend who was a Christian, and he asked his friend to tell him what he believed as a Christian. And of course, the the friend said, "I, I don't really want to debate you. You'll just embarrass me like you embarrass everybody else you debate. Huxley said, I promise I won't. And so the friend says, all right, here's what I believe. And he just lays out the beauty of the Christian faith. And in the end, Huxley bows his head and says, I wish to God that I could believe that. His friend said, why don't you believe it? And Huxley answered, for me to acknowledge Christ as Lord would mean he would be my master and I would have to give up my lifestyle and my women and everything else and I'm not willing to do that. See, most people's objections to Christianity are not intellectual, they're volitional. It's a matter of the will. We don't want to give our wills over to the rule of God. Huxley's pulling back the curtain of unbelief here. You know, a lot of people use that smoke screen. They, they, they say they want to know truth, but the moment it confronts their own autonomy, they shut the door. Look what Jude says at the end of verse 6 about the angels. He, he says that God has kept them in chains, eternal chains, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Not really sure that these are literal chains, but rather he's saying that in this present world, Satan's powers and liberty are restricted. He is shut out from heaven And the only thing he can do is wait with dread for the doom that will one day come when he's cast into the lake of fire. You know, what a foolish choice the serpent made, Satan made, to give up the glorious abode of heaven in exchange for chains and gloomy darkness. I mean, just remind you of this. If there are any of you here that think, you know, I'm not sure that I want to give my life over to Jesus Christ. I want to be in control of my life, and I'm just not sure that I want to to, to trust Jesus and let him rule over me. What you're saying is, I want to exchange all that Jesus offers me in heaven for eternal chains and gloomy darkness. Now, that is a very bad deal for you. That's what the angels did, and whatever the exact sin was, pride was at the root of it. Now, again, we have people in this room who struggle with pride. In fact, every one of us does if we're at all self-aware. But the key word is we struggle. See, when Jesus saves us, he sets us at war with our pride because my pride is the greatest thing hindering me from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And so to be a Christian is to declare war on pride. That is exactly what John the Baptist said. John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. John's not saying, hey, he needs to be a little greater and I need to be a little less. John's saying there, my pride is such that until it is obliterated, I will never see how great Jesus Christ is. 
that was what the angels did. They sought self rather than Christ. So remember the judgment that came upon the angels and then in this third example, he says, remember the judgment that God brought upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me remind you of it real quickly. The story starts with Abraham, who was called to go to the promised land, and then his nephew Lot is with them, and they come to the land, and Abraham says, Lot, you get first choice, and Lot says, I like that Lot a lot, so let's go there. So they go, and the land that Lot took, it was appealing to the eyes, but it was next to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it would be a blight upon Lot and his family. And so they settle there, and all Genesis tells us was about the neighbors. Genesis 13, verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, all of us are great sinners against the Lord. Everyone is sinful, but in saying this in Genesis 13, 13, God's saying there's a particular sense of rebellion that was commonplace, that was accepted among the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas. Now, what was it? It was sexual immorality. Isn't it amazing how some things never change? Ever since sin entered the world, this wonderful gift of, of gender and sexuality has been under attack. It's always being perverted. And so what was the sin of Sodom that brought them under judgment? It was, it was the sin of homosexuality. It was something that, that will never, ever, ever be acceptable in the eyes of God. But we need to understand this too. That sin was just a symptom of a greater problem. Look with me at the book of Ezekiel for a moment. It was a symptom of their wicked hearts. It, it wasn't even just a matter of what they did with their flesh. It was a matter of the condition of their hearts. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16. God says, behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excessive food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. They were proud. And so they did an abomination before me. In other words, their homosexuality, their sexual perversity, it was really just a symptom of crippling, intense pride. There's a really valuable point here that we should take to heart, and that is sin has a progression. It starts with unbelief. Has God really said? It moves to pride. I know more than God, which then leads to perverse living, to wicked and reckless living. That's always the progression of sin, questioning the word of God, saying we know more than God, and living according our, to our own rules and propensities rather than what God has outlined for us in Scripture. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We need to take these reminders of judgment seriously. We can't be like when the, the flight attendant comes on over the, the intercom and nobody pays a lick of attention to it because we're not worried about what's going to happen. We need to pay attention to these warnings of judgment. In fact, they, they show us everyone is accountable to God. 
the Israelites had the privilege of being the covenant people of God, but that did not excuse their rebellion. The angels lived in the presence of God, but that did not excuse their rebellion. The Sodomites lived in proximity to the promised land, but that nor their own ignorance excused their rebellion. They were all this close, and they were all condemned. Beloved, hear this clearly. God's past record of judgment serves here to remind us it is never safe to ignore God's warnings and his instructions. That's exactly what these false teachers were doing. They were saying, it's okay, I'm under grace, and so they were ignoring all the warnings. And Jude says, no, you're not under grace. You are under judgment unless you repent. God alone tells us how the world is supposed to operate, how we're supposed to operate in the world. And when we subvert him in order to create a reality of our own, it puts us in a place of great danger. We serve a just God before whom we must all give account. And you are either in Christ or you are not. Hebrews, which we just finished studying, asks this great question. Some of you may remember it. Hebrews asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And Jude gives the answer. He says, you won't. You won't escape. Look at the Israelites. Look at the angels. Look at the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You won't escape. And so it's a moment of crisis here for those who are not believers. And that may be some of you. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, then how are you going to stand in the day of judgment? And the answer is you won't. So please come to Jesus right now. It's also a moment of crisis here for those who think they're safe because they're in the church. But patterns of unrestrained pride and unrepentant hidden sin, even, even sin that nobody in this life knows anything about, but you have kept it hidden and you've committed patterns of unrepentance in your life so that you look good on the outside, but inside there is a pattern of ongoing rebellion against God. How will you stand before the God who has seen all of that? The Israelites had all the, the promises, and they did not believe, and they were judged for it. But we're like the people of Sodom who had a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. How will you escape, friends? How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? So it's a moment of crisis for unbelievers. It's a moment of crisis for people who think they're believers, but they're not. But it's also a moment of crisis for, for believers as well. Remember the context of what Jude is saying. Are you going to contend for the faith, standing up against false teachers, protecting the doctrine of the church from those who would lead you astray? Will you seek to be 
This is a question for you first, Scott. This is a question for me. Will we seek to be courageous, rooted, convicted, mature disciples who know right doctrine so that we can detect false doctrine when it creeps in? Will we have the courage to confront these things when they come to first Scott's? And they will. Will we be led astray? Will we fall to the teachings of the world, the flesh, and the devil, or not? Well, no, of course we won't. Every church that you pass today that is not preaching the gospel once wanted to, once had such ambitions and could not imagine themselves falling, they let their guard down and they fell. And in some of these churches, the gospel has not been preached in a hundred years. Churches you passed by this morning, We need to answer this. Will First Scots be a gospel-preaching, gospel-loving church in 50 years, 100 years? If the answer, if our desire is for the answer to be yes, then we must contend for the faith. Not contending for numbers, not contending to be loved by the world, but contending to be mature in the face, uh, mature in the faith, in the face of a world that utterly despises what we believe. The moment of crisis for you and me is, will we contend for the faith? Let me ask you, how did you contend for the faith this week? We contend by, on the one hand, defending the faith, and on the other hand, seeking to extend the kingdom. Do you defend the faith in the face of those who would teach otherwise, and do you share the gospel that others might believe and be added to the number? There's something really striking in Jude, and it's that he uses the word keep or kept repeatedly. In verse 1, we're told we are being kept for Christ Jesus. In our call to worship, Pastor Walton used the doxology that's at the end, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God keeps us one way or another. Either he keeps us in the faith by his grace or look at verse 6 those angels who are being kept in eternal chains R.C. Sproul used to say this God plays for keeps he will either keep you in his grace causing you to contend for the faith till he calls you home or he will keep you in eternal chains. It is a matter of crisis for us, and all of it depends on where we stand with Jesus Christ. How do we apply this? Let me give you three applications. First, do you see the danger of discontentment here? The Israelites, God had led them out of Egypt. He had given them manna in the wilderness, and all they ever did was complain. The angels that fell, they were given this place of great dignity and distinction, but it wasn't enough. And they complained because they wanted the glory that belonged to Jesus Christ. You know, discontentment isn't just a personality flaw. It's a sign of a heart issue, a heart that does not trust God's providence in our lives. And a discontent heart is ripe for sin. 
And so if you find yourself, and and perhaps we would all do well to track, how many times do I complain in a day? So hot outside, isn't it? There's one. Or our food. Might be apt to complain about our spouse. Some of you might even complain about the length of the sermon. We need to repent of a grumbling, discontent spirit because it gives an open door for Satan to lead us astray. That's first application. Second application. You and I ought to be making progress in sanctification in our lives. We ought to be growing in holiness. And so to go back to those two kind of pauses where I said some of you have tender consciences and perhaps you struggle with unbelief or you struggle with pride. Struggle is the key word. And when we are in Christ, we set ourselves at war with our sin and we ought to be making progress against those things. You know, it's never as fast as I want it to be. But it's the trajectory and the direction of your life to trust God, to walk with Him, to put sin to death. You know, God calls us all to make what seem to be costly sacrifices. For some, those, those sacrifices have to do with turning away from temptation towards sexual sin and resolving to live a pure and holy life. You know, if, if you're thinking... I I want to live a pure and holy life, but this computer screen is a temptation to me. You know what you ought to do? You ought to drop kick that computer screen through the wall. We need to make progress in sanctification. For others, the sacrifice will be our pride. We won't confess our sins. We won't confess our weakness because we want others to think well of us. Confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation, isn't it? For all who profess faith, there ought to be a trajectory of increasing obedience and love to God in our lives. If there isn't, there is a major problem, and you need to hear the warnings of judgment here. Third, All these examples remind us there will be a day in which it will be too late for people to come to saving faith. There will be a day in which it's going to be too late. And so for those of you here who perhaps are not trusting in Christ, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed to be here an hour from now. Turn your hearts to the Lord Jesus. But also think of those Christians, think of those who do not believe. Don't hesitate to speak with them about Jesus Christ because they have no guarantee of tomorrow and you have no guarantee that they will be here tomorrow. Doesn't it break our hearts to realize that there are some who are going to die in in their sins and live all of eternity in those gloomy eternal chains? You cannot change their hearts, but you can tell them about the one who can, and you can pray for them. See, seeing the warnings of judgment 
ought not only cause us to inspect our own lives, but it ought cause us to go to others and plead with them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the word. Oh, it's so precious to us. Even when it exceeds all that we can rightly understand, but we thank you that it shows us your heart, how wonderful your heart is. How great your patience and grace are to us. But I pray for any of us in here who perhaps think that just because we're part of a church family or just because we uh, perhaps know the name of Jesus and have spoken the name of Jesus that we are safe, let us use these examples as warnings for our own life that you can be so close and yet completely under your judgment. Father, I pray that none of us would leave here in such a state and that all of us would leave here praising you for your grace and excited to tell others 